Yeah, I think our children or our children's children might look on us saying how dumb we were and why didn't we do this sooner. This refers to dual language education, and in this second episode on dual language education, we'll meet people who have so much passion for what they're doing that it's, well, kind of amazing. Exactly, and we're going to hear why they are so passionate. But first, let's welcome everyone to America the Bilingual, a podcast that reports on and encourages the bilingual movement in America. I'm Steve Levine. And I'm Fernando Hernandez. By the way, I made a mistake when I said in our prior episode that dual language instruction is when half the day is taught in English and half in a second language. Sometimes it works that way, but other times students may start in kindergarten with 90% in Spanish, for example, and 10% in English, and then transition each year, doing more teaching in English until the ratios are reversed. Anyway, there are different models, but the goals for dual language education are always functional bilingualism and by literacy. Got it. And the key feature of dual language education is that you teach in the language rather than take language classes. Yes, so kids might take social studies in English and math and Chinese, for example. We're going to start our tour in California and work our way east through Colorado, Texas, Milwaukee, and finally to New York City, stopping along the way to hear the stories of people who seem to have a fire burning inside. So beginning in California, I was told I must interview a woman named Chris Nichols. I attended her speech at La Cosecha Conference, the conference all about dual language instruction. Chris has a fair complexion, blonde hair, and is quite tall. She talked about how to hire teachers and how to find the right curriculum, but she wasn't just about the nuts and bolts. You could tell she spoke from her heart. I sat down with Chris after her presentation. Why are you passionate about bilingualism? Because I think that it really made a difference for me in my education. You know, I was a reentry student, I guess that's the polite word for saying. And by the time I went back to school and got really serious about it, I was, you know, I had four kids already and um, knew that I needed to get a job because, well, with four kids and my husband being a high school teacher, it didn't always mean that you had the money you needed. My son was six foot eight and wore a size 16 shoe. You can't buy those at Walmart. So uh, we needed some extra funds. Chris went back to get her teaching credentials, but there was a problem. All the other jobs I was qualified for said bilingual preferred, and it was hard because I couldn't apply really. I'd taken four years of Spanish in high school, but as soon as I said, oh, we're going to start talking in Spanish, I was out of there. So Chris returned to studying Spanish, not knowing if she could get good enough. But along the way, I fell in love with the language. I absolutely fell in love with the language and realized I hadn't forgotten everything. Chris earned her master's and then her doctorate. She taught for a while, moved into administration, and there she saw something that surprised her. The test results for kids in dual language education. That led her to take on a bigger role where she now aids bilingual teachers in their own professional development. So how big, Chris, is dual language in California today and how big do you think it could become or should become? It's large and growing. 
and potentially exponentially. Because of the amazing success of the programs with regards to the English literacy of the students, the English learners, and their academic achievement, that they're closing the achievement gap. So much so that you know our organization, California Association for Bilingual Education, formed their own professional development services because our vision is um, biliteracy, educational equity, and 21st century success for all. Steve, dual language programs were designed to mix native Spanish speakers with native English speakers, right? Yes, and Chris said that's when the surprise happened. So originally the dual programs were to really meet the needs of the English learners with regards to higher levels of literacy in English as well as higher levels of academic achievement. But again, along the way, as we gathered the data, we found that it was very beneficial for the other students in the program. Uh, sorry, do you mean the English native English speakers? It was uh, beneficial for them as well? Yes, for the students that were English dominant or English only, they had great benefits not only in their literacy in English but also their levels of literacy in the target language. We touched on this in our last episode, that native English-speaking kids who spent part of their day learning in Spanish were scoring higher in English than kids who spent all day in English. Yeah, it sounds counterintuitive, but the tests are showing this, and the results are emboldening administrators to set some lofty goals. I think I heard you say during your presentation that the Los Angeles Unified School District put out a position or a goal for themselves. Their superintendent declared publicly that by 2032, all students in LAUSD would have the opportunity to become bilingual by the time they graduate in 2032. For the record, LA Unified School District has more than 700,000 students, second only to New York City. For Chris, her commitment to help all children stems from her own experience as an outsider. I was born in Southern California and raised there. When I started first grade, that was the first year that desegregation occurred. And so from the very beginning of my educational career, I have had a great opportunity to have very diverse students alongside me. Those early experiences left a lasting impression. And so I really look at myself as being what California and I hope the U.S. is really looking at with regards to us all understanding, respecting, appreciating where we come from. Despite her Anglo looks, Chris has felt the sting of being an outsider. People look at me and they, they look at me and she's, well, she's Caucasian. Okay, I am. But they don't understand that you have to look deeper than that. My mother was an immigrant. She was born and raised in Vancouver, British Columbia, but her parents were Irish immigrants. And as such, I had a kind of a different upbringing. Coming to America from Canada wasn't as smooth as one might think. When I went to school, I didn't know about pledging the flag because my mother, she never pledged the flag because she was not a citizen, and so I didn't. And my lack of knowledge of that when I entered kindergarten was received with less than compassionate understanding. I asked Chris why bilingualism is so important to her. I would say that one of the things that has really been pivotal in me being able to be as successful as I am as a, a person, as a citizen, as an educator, as a parent, in all aspects of my life has been this journey that I've taken to become bilingual and being able to help support others in that journey. Like many people we've interviewed on America the Bilingual, 
Chris thinks the melting pot model has seen its day. I would hope that all could benefit in the same way and feel as closely tied to this idea of what America is, not as a melting pot, but as a way of looking at all of us recognizing and celebrating each other's languages, cultures, and just who we are as individuals, but more importantly, that we all can be Americans without having to give that up. So if you could speak to parents, what would you say to parents? Be an advocate for your child to have this opportunity. There was a time when it wasn't a big interest program and then I would say about 10 years ago we started to see it the trajectory just went straight off the charts. We had so many families wanting dual language education. My name is Suzanne Wheeler Del Piccolo. I'm principal at Basalt Elementary School in Basalt, Colorado. I was able to sit down with Suzanne at La Cosecha. I asked her why she saw such a spike in demand. I think our community came to really understand that we were a dual language community and being bilingual biliterate was an asset to the work world. Both Anglo and Latino families saw that as an asset. Do you have more demand than you can supply? I've always had more demand than I can supply. That has been an ongoing challenge, always, always. We've heard about teacher shortages everywhere. I've heard that the U.S. is recruiting teachers from my country, Mexico. I asked Suzanne about that. We have hired teachers from all, really all over the world. We have teachers from Chile. We have teachers from Colombia, Costa Rica, Mexico. There we go. Venezuela, Peru. I've had teachers from Argentina. And we've done that in very creative ways. A lot of internet work, finding sites where teachers will go to look for jobs. Our district has now um, embraced really working with teachers to get them H-1B visas. But there was a problem. We've had to navigate the challenges of federal legislation as they've changed the immigration and visa laws. So it's a lot of perseverance <laughs> and um, a lot of grit to bring in highly qualified and effective teachers. And we're always looking for teachers who were trained in the United States, but we're not bringing in students into the colleges to fill the teacher positions. But if recruiting teachers is hard, finding them affordable housing can be even harder. Especially near-exclusive Aspen. We're down valley from Aspen, but yes, we're in the valley. So a couple of years ago, our valley passed a bond and they put in $15 million to build affordable housing. And that affordable housing allowed Suzanne's teachers to save between $500 and $1,000 per month, which was huge. I'll never forget the day when they all moved into housing, and it's close to our school, it's beautiful housing. I sense that you're passionate about what you do, why? I really believe our future is based on an educated populace. If our children are well-educated in schools in which they all feel like they are a part of and they belong to and it's inclusive, I have great hope for this country. That's why I've been such an advocate for dual language all these years.
Steve, it seems that Chris and Suzanne are both driven by a desire not just to give students the gift of bilingualism, but to improve America from a social justice point of view. You're right. I sense that all over La Cosecha Conference and nowhere more than in the keynote address by a spellbinding speaker named Tony Baez. Social justice is at the very heart of that because we want bilingualism and biculturalism also to help us build people's better understanding of each other, communicating with each other, ending the segregation of our communities, blacks and Latinos living in different sections of the cities, etc. For Tony, this is way beyond just speaking a second language. Dual language can help us, you know, break that, bring people together, and have a learning that is transformative, that it creates a next generation of kids that are bilingual, bicultural, but better human beings. Tony Baez is currently a director of the Milwaukee School Board. He has been a teacher and administrator, a professor and a dean. He told me that dual language education started as a grassroots movement, which is key. Now, the good thing with dual language is that it's happening in schools. Schools that have dual language programs, like the people that are in this conference, the teachers, the educators, the principals, are spreading the word because they are feeling good about it. And the grassroots movement is working up to school districts and states, including his own state of Wisconsin. So in my district, where I come from, I managed to work with a group of people to get the school board to pass unanimously a resolution for bilingualism in Milwaukee, in the Midwest. So the idea is that the grassroots movement eventually takes over the whole country? That's the goal that Tony advocates for. We need to grow the idea of dual language to the point that everybody in this country accepts that notion that bilingualism is good for everybody. Tony Baez wasn't the only charismatic speaker at La Cosecha. When I saw a large ballroom overflowing with people, I got myself inside. I'm guessing there were 400 people filling all the seats, lining the walls, and sitting on the floor. I found a spot to stand and looked up front to see a young, energetic man moving fast, telling jokes and asking questions. Wait a minute, were you sneaking yourself into that room? Yeah, well, kind of. He asked who in the audience were teachers, who were administrators, and then if there were anyone else. I raised my hand and felt the whole room turn and stare at me. I'm a journalist, I said, and he said something like, Dios mio, we were found out, and everyone laughed. How did you feel to be put on the spot? <laughs> well, a bit uncomfortable, but he said during his talk that he likes to make people uncomfortable. I sat down with Jose the following day. Before I forget, Jose, would you just finish the sentence, I'm your name and your title? Sure. So my name is Dr. Jose Medina, and I'm the Director of Dual Language and Bilingual Education at the Center for Applied Linguistics in Washington, D.C. You said something in your presentation yesterday that struck me. You said, I like to make people feel uncomfortable. Because only when we're uncomfortable do we actually grow. For Jose, it's not enough that teachers be good teachers. One of the things that I always charge participants in sessions that I facilitate is that we can't just be great dual language educators, whatever, we should be. That's what we went to school for. But on top of that, we also need to embrace our role as defenders of equity and social justice. Should all schools be dual language? 
Look, that's a loaded question, and I'm gonna, I won't answer for the Center for Applied Linguistics, but I'll answer for myself. And I really have seen firsthand the benefit of dual language, absolutely. I think that any time that you provide any single student the opportunity to function in a global society, see each other's similarities and differences, but view those differences as opportunities to connect rather than obstacles to overcome, then how would you say no to that? Jose told me that he also has personal reasons to be a champion for dual language instruction. Some of my family members were not able to achieve at high levels academically in English or Spanish because they weren't provided native language support. I shared with Jose that we reported in a prior episode, titled Ed Delatore Doesn't Speak Spanish, that fully 25% of American Latinos don't speak Spanish because they can't. Well, it's sad when we take a look at this kind of data. I can tell you that some of my um, cousins, and and we're all first-generation Mexican-Americans, don't know how to speak and communicate in Spanish, even within our own family. Part of that, I understand, because I know that my parents and my uncles and aunts were so discriminated against for speaking Spanish that I can see where some parents try to prevent their kids from going through that. I would dare to say that if parents fully understood the the research behind dual language, that there would be less of the eroding of the culture and language in the home. I guess he has some words of encouragement to prevent that. So if you were uh, had an opportunity to talk to America's parents of children entering the school system, what would you say to them? I would say, buenas tardes, buenos días. Mi nombre es José Luis Medina Hernández Franco López Jr. Díaz Cruz, and I'm so excited that you have made the decision to really offer your children the opportunity to uh, be bilingual, but even more so to be biliterate. I'm excited that, that you want your children to be able to have high academic achievement. And finally, I, I would congratulate them on taking the step to ensure that their children see other people as, as vehicles for communication and collaboration rather than, than obstacles, which I think our, our society in general it really is in need of right now. So from the American Southwest, we travel to Manhattan's Upper East Side. That's where we meet our next voice for change. I think bilingual education is a good education. It triggers so many benefits and so important for our communities and schools and cities and even the country that it should be everywhere. I am Fabrice Jomont. I am the author of The Bilingual Revolution. Fabrice is a big, soft-spoken man. A native of France, he moved to the U.S. in 1997 and is currently the education attaché for the Embassy of France. I met up with Fabrice at the elegant French bookstore Albertine on Fifth Avenue. I want to ask you about the subtitle of your book. The future of education is in two languages. My friend Greg Roberts uh, keeps saying is that monolingualism is the illiteracy of the 21st century, and I think he's right. It's no longer acceptable to just be rubbing in one language or in one vision of um, one's culture or one's society. I think having multiple perspectives, uh, cultural understanding of others, of others' cultures, of appreciating your neighbor's cultures, it's all tied together. Fabrice wasn't raised a bilingual, but had to struggle to become one. 
had to learn English the hard way. I remember I was failing exams in English in college just because my vocabulary or my grammar was too literary. In those days, they would make you read Shakespeare all the time, which I have nothing against. But when you go out and order food in London, it's not Shakespeare that will help you. When Fabrice and his wife, who is also French, had their own children, Fabrice was determined that they would be bilingual from the beginning. It was easy to cocoon the kids in French when they were small, but when it was time for school, that was a different world, a world Fabrice understood only too well. I was a school director of a private school in Cambridge. It was a bilingual program, French and English. People were paying top dollars to get into this program. This was in Cambridge, Mass? In Cambridge, Mass, yes. We had waiting lists upon waiting lists of American families, monolingual English American families, trying to get their kids in the school. And when I moved to New York, it was the same story. When you get to the French Lycée Français or other schools like that, they're very, very good schools. But not everyone can afford them. How much do those schools cost today, just uh, for reference? In New York, I would say it's about $32,000 on average. And they have uh, far more demand than they have supply, is that right? Completely. They're full. They're they're attracting a lot of families from all over the world. You think that there's just a lot of pent-up demand and that's why it's going to revolutionize public schools? In big cities, it's the case. And in big cities, there's a middle class that has been thinking about trying to do similar things in public schools. And that was the case in Brooklyn. So Fabrice put his background as a school director and his position as education attaché to work. He began helping parents start French-English dual-language programs in public schools in Brooklyn. He had his own growing reasons to do so. Cléa is the eight-year-old, and Félicie is the four-year-old. Fabrice and other parents were successful in getting some French-English programs growing in Brooklyn, and once they did, word spread. So I was constantly um, approached by parents, whether they were French-speaking, and then it moved to a group of Japanese mums, and then a couple of Russian mums, and then Germans, the Italians. There were so many people asking me about what's the recipe. Fabrice improvised. The French parents wrote a roadmap of what they had to do to get to you know, opening their programs. And that roadmap was the thing I was giving all these parents. That's all I had. You know, I was giving, of course, tips and ideas and guiding them as much as I could. He carried on helping parents for several years. So then I thought, well, this has been going on for 10 years, and I'm getting calls from all over the U.S. now. And I thought, well, perhaps it's time to put this in a book. Steve, you read his book. What do you think? His book, The Bilingual Revolution, is marvelous. It's an easy-to-read mix of the big picture, along with practical advice geared to parents who want to get their own programs started. He also has New York City parents tell their own stories. And you spoke with one of these parents from his book, right? I did. Fabrice introduced me to a mother who helped get a Japanese-English program started. I crossed the East River to Brooklyn and met her in the sixth-floor lounge of a sleek new apartment building. I'm going to sit here and uh, be able to hold the mic for you. Tell me a little bit about yourself. My name is Yuli Fisher. I'm a mother of two boys, aged four and six. 
and we live in Brooklyn, New York. When I became a mother in Brooklyn, I became interested in the education of my children. And as I began to look at schools, I found I had a preference for schools that had dual language programs because speaking a second language has always appealed to me, even though I didn't actually speak one. <laughs> Yuli's parents were immigrants from Taiwan. They spoke Taiwanese to Yuli and her siblings when they were young, but when Yuli began school, her parents gave up trying to speak Taiwanese at home. How do your parents feel about that now? Uh, you know, they have regrets. We've talked about it. Yuli became friends with other mothers in the neighborhood. One spoke Mandarin, another Korean, and two spoke Japanese. They teamed up first to create a babysitting co-op, and having succeeded at that, decided to try something bigger. They heard about Fabrice and asked his advice for starting a Japanese dual-language program that their own children could attend. Why did you choose Japanese? For many of us, the language is not so important. My first choice was French, but after talking to Fabrice, we didn't want to compete with the French dual language program that was already in the district. There was already a Spanish dual language program. And then we also knew that there was a, a community of Japanese parents. So we found two schools that were open to a Japanese dual language program. Would this be the first Japanese dual language program in Brooklyn? Yes, and that was also sort of one of the reasons why we chose it too. So Yuli's sons are learning Japanese. Actually, no. Before the Japanese school opened, Yuli's older son was accepted into the French dual language program nearby. As for the other mothers who helped create the program, only one was able to get her son enrolled in it. What did that feel like? Uh, it felt good because I think we were all kind of sort of civic-minded and community-minded, and we knew that we were sort of investing in the future of our community. In his book, Fabrice advises parents to start early because it can take two years or longer for a program to get going, yet sometimes things happen fast. Fabrice shared a story of a certain unusual principal who, after listening to a pitch from parents, gave them more than they bargained for. When we met Giselle McGee, who was the principal of PS58 in Carroll Gardens, it turns out that when Giselle was a kid in the 1960s in New York, well, not only she spoke French at home, but when she got to kindergarten, there were no dual language programs back then, she decided, I will stop speaking French because all my friends speak English. And she went back to her mother and said, Mom... I will not speak French to you anymore. When she grew up, Giselle became a teacher, and much later, the principal at PS 58. And when the three moms approached her 10 years ago and asked, would you consider creating a, an after-school program in French? Well, within 30 minutes, not only the after-school was accepted, but she also said, well, why don't we do a full-day, you know, French dual-language program? And today... That school, PS58, has served uh, thousands of children through that program. This is someone who, who lost her language, but fate has it that 60 years later, she, as a principal, created something that is so important for, for the city, and for the French-speaking community, but also for everybody. Does Fabrice think dual language schools can really sweep the nation? Fabrice advocates for French-English schools all along our border with Canada. 
and Spanish-English schools all along our border with Mexico. Yeah, I think our, chi- our children or our children's children might look on us saying how dumb we were and why didn't we do this sooner. But this is changing. I really have the feeling that this is happening now. This is changing now. This more schools, communities and states going into this. That's why I'm happy. I'm not too old to see it, and I'm happy to see my daughters uh, experience it, and I'm happy to contribute to its um, development. As usual, our listeners can go to our website for more information. Yes, at americathebilingual.com, we'll have photos of our guests, some backstories, links to Fabrice's book, and links to the Center for Applied Linguistics, which sounds kind of dry, but has some excellent information for parents. Wait, we can have Jose Medina explain. If you go to www.cal.org, that's C-A-L dot O-R-G forward slash GP3, that's GP3, you can download it for free. And it's a resource that honestly is used all over the country to implement and continue to strengthen dual language programs. But more importantly, to share the information with the community so that the community understands fully what it is that dual language programming is and, and what it should look like, the capacity that it has to really change our country and our society Uh, and move it forward. The America the Bilingual podcast is part of the Lead with Languages campaign of ACTFL, the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages. This episode was written by me, Steve Levine, and our producer, Fernando Hernandez, who also does our sound design and mixing. Check out the rest of our cast at americathebilingual.com, including Becky Rankin, Carlos Plaza, Mim Harrison, and our barklingual mascot, Chet. Our main musical theme is Quasi-Motion by Kevin McLeod under a Creative Commons attribution license. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. You'll be helping to spread the bilingual word. Thanks for listening. For America the Bilingual, this is Steve Levine.